You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, public health initiatives. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host tonight. With me today, I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Jem Newman. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. So public health is the science and art of preventing disease. And there are about 10 million ways to prevent various diseases, many of which can decrease mortality, increase quality of life, and increase lifespan across populations. Some of them can be lauded as big reasons why humans are, on the whole, living longer and healthier lives. The other side of the coin is that, of course, there are many terrible, misguided, or poorly done attempts at public health that have done lasting harm. This month, we're talking about a few public health initiatives and their impact on the world. One quick note to tell you all that with Jem heading back to medical school, as back to medical school, with Jem heading to medical school. Heading back to school. <laughs> back to school to be a doctor. Uh, as well as the pandemic causing us to have to record in our own homes, leading to longer editing times, we're going to try and tighten up our shows here a little bit. We'll be trying out shorter segments and letting whoever is doing the editing step away from having to write and research a segment of their own. So let's see how that goes. We're going to start today with Jem covering hand washing. Excellent. Both the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control recommend washing your hands in the following circumstances. Before eating, before, during, and after preparing food, after using the toilet or helping somebody who's just used the toilet, changing a diaper, that sort of thing, after coughing, sneezing, or blowing your nose, after touching or caring for an animal, after touching garbage, and before and after caring for someone who is sick. So these are all the cases in which you should always wash your hands. In addition, during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the CDC recommends cleaning your hands before touching your eyes, nose, or mouth, since mucous membranes are the primary route by which pathogens enter our bodies. And after you've been in a public place and come into contact with anything that's frequently touched, and that includes door handles, tables, gas pumps, shopping carts, payment terminals, and like self-checkouts, Hand washing should last at least 20 seconds, and you should take care to ensure that your fingertips, uh, between your fingers, under your fingernails, and the backs of your hands are all adequately washed. And while proper hand washing, that is to say with soap and water, ought to be preferred, a hand sanitizer that's at least 60% ethanol or isopropanol by volume will do but only if your hands aren't greasy or excessively dirty. Because unlike soap, alcohol isn't antipathic. It's hydrophilic, but not hydrophobic, so it won't remove nonpolar substances like grease that might be hiding pathogens. 
Additionally, hand sanitizers are not as effective against all types of pathogens and are of no benefit when uh, trying to wash away harmful chemical agents. I wanted to do a bit of a discussion about the history of hand washing kind of in general before getting into Semmelweis, um, but I'm not going to. We're just going to mostly skip this part because I want to keep this relatively snappy. But I will just note that symbolic or ritual hand washing using, that is to say using water but without any kind of detergent or soap, is part of many religions, um, including Hinduism, uh, the Baha'i faith, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Many religions also uh, mandate hygienic hand washing. That would be hand washing that these days does, in fact, include use of soap, uh, especially after certain actions like using the toilet and uh, before and after every meal. Uh, religions that do and have done that for uh, centuries include Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, and Sikhism. But the medical community has not always been that gung-ho about the idea of washing hands historically seeing it as a bit superstitious. So now we get into the story of Ignaz Semmelweis. Semmelweis was a 19th century Hungarian obstetric physician, so that is a doctor specializing in childbirth. In 1846, Semmelweis was appointed to the first obstetrical clinic of the Vienna General Hospital. His job was to supervise difficult deliveries, teach obstetric students, and examine patients for Professor Johann Klein, who led the clinic. Semmelweis was also, and this is rather important, placed in charge of record-keeping. Vienna General Hospital had two maternity clinics, and the second clinic had a much better reputation than the clinic where Semmelweis had been placed. The clinics admitted patients on alternate days, and Semmelweis described women who arrived on the wrong day begging on their knees to be admitted to the second clinic rather than his own. Some mothers-to-be would go so far as to give birth on the streets rather than become patients at Vienna's first clinic, and with good reason. The second clinic at Vienna General Hospital had an average maternal mortality rate of just under 4%. Not exactly wonderful, considering that Canada's maternal mortality rate currently sits at less than 0.01%, with the United States at about double that, but 4% was about what one would expect for a hospital birth in the mid-19th century. By contrast, Vienna General's first clinic saw a whopping 10% of mothers die after giving birth. I say after specifically rather than during, because the majority of these deaths were attributable to puerperal or postpartum fever. Most damningly, the incidence of fever and death among mothers who delivered at the first clinic was higher even than those mothers who elected to give birth on the street. This was obviously troubling to Semmelweis. He wrote, To me, it appeared logical that patients who experienced street births would become ill at least as frequently as those who delivered in the clinic. What protected those who delivered outside the clinic from these destructive, unknown, endemic influences? Semmelweis began to examine every distinguishing feature that might be the cause of the differences between the two clinics. Both clinics had the same climate, they were located basically in the same place, and overcrowding was an unlikely cause because the second clinic was actually much more crowded than the first. The only difference that Semmelweis could identify was in the people who worked there. The first clinic was staffed by medical students, 
while deliveries at the second clinic were performed by midwives in training. But since the delivery techniques in use at the two clinics were nearly identical, that seemed to him to be an unlikely cause. It was actually the death of his friend Jacob Kolechka in 1847 that led Semmelweis to the answer. Kolechka had been poked by the scalpel of a student who was in the midst of performing an autopsy, and Kolechka died in a manner that Semmelweis deemed very similar to the patients in the first obstetrical clinic. Semmelweis proposed that the doctors and medical students who staffed the first clinic, and I quote, carried cadaverous particles on their hands from the autopsy room to the patients they examined in the first obstetrical clinic. The midwives in the second clinic had no contact with the dead. This, Semmelweis believed, was the cause of their much lower mortality rate. What was happening was doctors would be performing an autopsy, and then they would be called away to deliver a child, and they would just go straight from having their hands in a cadaver to delivering a child. Like, even if you don't know about germs, that seems like a bad plan. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> well, especially because through history, we've known that people who have died of things like the plague were dangerous, and that's why people burned bodies and things like that and like yeah like we tried to get away from them there have been like rules about not going near dead people and certain practices for so long yeah like Uh. some of it's cultural but some of it's like we kind of knew there was something going on one of the things to remember is that this is still the era of miasms um the idea that uh things were caused by like uh like bad odors or you know vapors of some sort and so it was implausible that a or it was deemed implausible at the time that a person who was not dead could be a a, like a A go-between a vector ah because the person was not carrying whatever you know the person was not dead so how could they be emitting these kind of miasms So Semmelweis immediately mandated that everyone wash their hands in a chlorine solution between autopsy work and the examination of patients. He found that chlorinated lime worked well to remove the putrid smell of the corpse. I like that, like, he even chose something that was pretty effective. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there there could have been a good chance that he was like, let's just use water and uh, use the same water for everybody who goes through here. And then it would have been like, oh, well, that didn't work. I guess that was the wrong answer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so from what I can tell, he tested a few different solutions, but mm. he found that uh, that uh, chlorine of lime was the best solution to remove the, the, the odor. And uh, so he supposed that it may also destroy whatever cadaverous contaminant was being transmitted as well. Mm-hmm. And the result was immediate. Mortality in the first clinic fell by 90%, and there was no longer any discernible difference between mortality rates at the two clinics. Uh, The results uh, were similar at every clinic that Semmelweis visited. Despite the dramatic reductions in maternal mortality at every hospital that adopted his hand-washing techniques, Semmelweis' theories were not readily accepted by the wider medical establishment in Europe. And where they were, the implications of his findings were often misunderstood or dismissed as trivial. Many physicians assumed that Semmelweis was merely pointing out that puerperal fever was contagious, which was already known at the time, believing that patients were becoming infected from contact with each other, or at a minimum that the, that the doctors who were attending one patient would then transfer the puerperal fever to the next patient. 
uh, when the true cause was, of course, that the doctors were contaminating their patients with decaying organic matter from the dead. This misunderstanding was exacerbated by the fact that Semmelweis seemed initially reluctant to publish his findings himself, leaving it to his students to spread accounts of his work. One such account was published in The Lancet in 1848, but it would be another decade before Semmelweis began publishing his findings himself. But adoption of handwashing by obstetricians was further hampered by the lack of a rigorous explanation for why contact with the dead could be so dangerous. It would be decades before the widespread acceptance of the germ theory of disease in Vienna, and in its absence, handwashing was dismissed by many as superstitious. In 1861, Semmelweis wrote, Most medical lecture halls continue to resound with lectures on epidemic childbed fever and with discourses against my theories. In published medical works, my teachings are either ignored or attacked. Semmelweis, understandably, became depressed, and his family and colleagues reported that he became absent-minded and obsessive. He began to drink heavily, and it was soon impossible to converse with him on any subject other than puerperal fever, because he would turn all discussions back to this, this thing that was troubling him. It's too bad that dead or icky didn't catch on as enough reason. Yeah. <laughs> Semmelweis began to write open letters, rarely a good sign, lashing out at prominent European obstetricians who were critical of his work, and finally addressing his letters to all obstetricians. These open letters were described as desperate, bitter, highly polemical, and superlatively offensive. He called his critics ignoramuses and irresponsible murderers. Well, it must have been intolerable to see patients continue to die to easily preventable diseases. There may have been other contributors to Semmelweis's behavior. In his biography of Semmelweis, K. Cadell Carter wrote, quote, it is impossible to appraise the nature of Semmelweis's disorder. It may have been Alzheimer's disease, a type of dementia, which is associated with rapid cognitive decline and mood changes. It may have been third-stage syphilis, a then-common disease of obstetricians who examined thousands of women at gratis institutions. Or it might have been emotional exhaustion from overwork and stress. So the syphilis hypothesis is very possible because, as noted, Semmelweis's clinic um, was a free clinic for anyone, and many of his patients were prostitutes, understandably, uh, and tragically, they would frequently suffer from um, these types of diseases. In 1865, under the pretense of inspecting a new medical institution, Semmelweis was lured by a colleague to a Viennese asylum. He quickly understood what was happening, but when he tried to leave, he was severely beaten, wrapped in a straitjacket, and locked in a cell. Hmm. Two weeks later, at the age of 47, he died of gangrene, most likely due to an injury he sustained at the hands of the guards. Ugh. But now, we know to wash our hands. It's so interesting how something that's so basic now was so foreign then. Yeah, it's like 150 years old at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, and just... You know, hearing that story of the medical community not wanting to accept it, I can't help but think, okay, well, who does this condition affect? Women. Who cares about them? Right? That must have been the attitude, at least to some degree, right? If this condition was affecting men, uh, uh, 
I don't know, whatever walk of life. I'm wondering if it might have adop been adopted a little bit faster. It's certainly possible. And there's also the arrogance of assuming that because you don't understand why something is happening, you dismiss the idea that it's happening at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just as you were discussing that, uh, the reaction of the uh, the medical community at the time, I'm like, wow, they just do not want to get off that pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought we would go in chronological order in our public health initiatives, and I'm not certain, uh, but I think I'm up next. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to talk about toothbrushing, because that was the initial thing that got me thinking about this whole public health initiatives thing anyway. So one of the coolest things I learned while I was writing this segment was that other primates clean their teeth too. Uh, mm -hmm. Long-tailed macaques keep their teeth clean with improvised floss uh, using bird feathers, coconut fibers, blades of grass, or nylon thread. Uh, and they are <laughs> wow. the third Moss. macaque species that they have found to do this. Uh, they even plan ahead, apparently, by taking the nylon threads and tearing them apart before they use them. Uh, so they're more <laughs> useful to them. God, monkeys are so cool. <laughs> So because we've observed other primates cleaning their teeth, we can probably assume that even the earliest humans had some form of oral hygiene. Uh, as one of the articles I read uh, said, the index finger is likely the first toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and some of the earliest tools, twigs, are still in wide use today. Uh, I actually went down quite a rabbit hole of Islamic hygiene practices when I learned about miswak. I think that's how it's pronounced, but I have not heard it said, so... You know, bear with me. So, miswak or siwak are sticks that are usually from a particular tree, Salvadora persica, uh, which are called arak in Arabic, uh, and they are used to clean the teeth. The ends of the sticks will fray when you chew them, uh, and they can be cut off and used over a period of time. So you can use the same stick for quite a while as you wear it down. The hadith are a set of writings concerning the life of the Prophet Muhammad, and Muslim people use them as a source of morality and religious laws. Muhammad is purported to have been a great proponent of Mizwak, even saying that if he didn't think it would have overburdened his followers, he would have ordered them to use it before every prayer. <laughs> so accordingly... Yeah, brushing your teeth, what, five times a day? Yeah, <laughs> at least. <laughs> Situations in which Mizwak is recommended now include before religious practice, before entering one's house, before and after going on a journey, on Fridays, before sleeping mm -hmm. and after waking up, when experiencing hunger or thirst, and before entering any good gathering. Any good gathering. Yep. <laughs> not the shitty ones. Right. I wonder if there's a lot of regret there. Like, oh, this was not a good one. Or damn it, this was a good one. Shouldn't have chewed what on that you... stick. I brushed my teeth for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you're, you're, you're looking at your, 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 as your friends are coming over for dinner, you're, you're peering at their teeth. Oh, did you brush? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see what you think of me. Yeah. <laughs> Never look a gift horse in the mouth, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Miswak is still in wide use today, sometimes concurrently with toothbrushes and toothpaste, but often separately. They're said to have many beneficial properties, including antibacterial effects, leaving you with good breath, and even stopping decay that has already started. I found one study that found almost no antibacterial effects from extracts of the tree, uh, so they tested it with two things that are known to have antibacterial properties and this, and this had basically none. Uh, 
But there's also a study that did um, a big uh, survey of basically school children aged 13 to 17, and they took them from a bunch of different schools in an area that had people who used exclusively Mizwak and some that used uh, toothpaste and toothbrush, and some who used both. And they looked about what their gingivitis score was, so they looked at their teeth and scored them for gingivitis signs, uh, and mm-hmm. also whether they required periodontal treatment later in life. So they found that the people who used Mizwak had uh, a lower gingivitis score, so they had less gingivitis than the people who used exclusively toothbrush and toothpaste, but the best results obviously were from using both. But it's mm-hmm. a it's a pretty effective treatment. Well, it sounds like it's something that you use a lot more often than your typical twice-a-day toothbrushing that, you know, at least here in North America is common. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. Like, if you're doing it before eating, before bed, when you wake up, when you go places, like, all these things, like, you're just more likely to clean stuff off your teeth. Yeah, you get all of that food off of your teeth more often. Yeah, um, yeah. The authors of the study also attribute it so to both the mechanical cleaning and also to the pharmacological benefits of substances released by the stick, uh, which include chlorides, fluorides, silica, sulfur, vitamin C, saponins, and sterols. So there's a lot of stuff in this tree. <laughs> mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. And even just, I imagine, chewing something like that, you're going to stimulate saliva production as well. And, you know, having more liquid in your mouth to wash stuff away. Was there any discussion about how if, if this is done in a more ritual way, how some people are a little slapdash about brushing their teeth, if this is done with a more thoughtful, mm-hmm. and if, if you're thoughtful. Oh, I bet a lot of people are doing uh, slapdash ritual stuff too, especially <laughs> 13 to 17 year olds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say anything about that. Okay. But anyway, cleaning your teeth with a stick is, was, and continues to be very useful. So continuing with the invention of the toothbrush, uh, about 800 years ago, someone in China figured out the whole bristle thing. They attached coarse animal hairs, probably wild boar, to handles made of either bamboo or bone. And then travelers in the Middle Ages brought them to Europe. So that's how they were introduced to Europeans. Uh, The Europeans didn't like the boar hair very much. It was very rough, very hard on their gums and teeth. Uh, So they tried out horse hair, uh, which is apparently more gentle. However, horses were much more valuable to Europeans than boars were. uh, So it was only the wealthy who could have a horse hair toothbrush. (laughs) (laughs) There were other options that Europeans had available to them. There was the Greek way, which was to rub the teeth and gums with rough cloths, sometimes dipped in oil and salt solutions. Uh, And sometimes these cloths were even attached to a stick. However, one article I read suggested that this shouldn't count in the evolution of the toothbrush since the teeth were essentially being mopped rather than brushed. <laughs> Come on. I don't know. This I, is a that tooth mop. Tooth, brushing. <laughs> tooth mopping. I don't know. But once you have the salt in there, you've got the abrasive nature. It's just not from a hard bristle. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would still have been just as useful, pretty much. Uh, I also didn't really look into the evolution of toothpaste, but uh, we know that the ancient Egyptians had some sort of horrifying mixture of uh, ground ox hooves and eggshells that they used to rub their teeth with, which just sounds so bad. I assume there was going to be urine in there. I, <laughs> it is the I assume there's going to be urine in all those old things. <laughs> or wine, sometimes wine. 
Or both. Sure, what? why not both? <laughs> yeah, I managed to, uh, to avoid the urine in my segment because we've already talked about urine hand sanitizer. <laughs> uh, that was that was hand sanitizer, right? That yeah. was hand sanitizer. I did not yeah. order any. I don't have to <laughs> Can't even uh, remember two episodes ago or whatever. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been like six years since two episodes ago. Yeah, it feels like. <laughs> Quarantine time. Yeah, so tooth mops don't count. <laughs> Lots of different tooth powders have existed over the years. Uh, that's where the French word for toothpaste comes from, dentifrice. Uh, dentifrices still exist as powders that you can put on your teeth. Uh, like I remember when you used to go to a hotel and they would have like free toothbrushes that had like a, like a powder on them. Really? Yeah. I've never seen that before. I've never seen that either. I don't think I dreamed that. <laughs> <laughs> I went through a phase when I was younger where I just, well, I, you know, still halfway in it. Uh, I was just repulsed by toothpaste. Um, and so I tried the whole, like, just using baking soda thing. Man, is that a bad taste. Yeah, and it's also going to, like, kill the enamel in your teeth. Yeah, so. yeah it's way more abrasive than, than necessary. Yeah. Uh, the first person to mass produce toothbrushes was William Addis. So this is the the first name in this whole toothbrush saga. But there are several versions of his origin story. Essentially, he was in jail. He was probably very bored, and he took some kind of bone, possibly leftovers from his dinner, but that might be something that was elaborated on later, uh, and drilled holes in it. I'm wondering what tool he had to drill holes in bone in a jail cell, but that wasn't covered. Uh, and he fashioned bristles uh, out of something, not specified, and fastened them mm -hmm. into this bone with wire, uh, which apparently made a pretty good toothbrush. And when he got out of jail, he began to produce lots of these toothbrushes for sale using cow bones and cow hair, and he became very rich. Hmm. Oh. During World War One, cow bones, which had been used to make these toothbrushes up until then, they were more useful in soup rather than as toothbrushes, uh, so they became <laughs> scarce and unable. And still, toothbrushing wasn't like a big thing yet. It wasn't a widespread habit that most people got into before World War One, and the cow bones yeah, during World War One, the cow bones got replaced with celluloid, so they were uh, like an injected plastic type of deal. Uh, they made the handles out of those instead because this cow bone was needed elsewhere. But the bristles were still made of animal hair. And that didn't change until 1937, which was the year that nylon was invented. Mm -hmm. right. People, again, still weren't mostly, mostly weren't brushing their teeth. Enter Dr. West's Miracle Tuft Toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> what a great name, right? I, uh, yeah, I miss those old naming conventions. <laughs> So these they nylon... almost exclusively meant scam, though. Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think this is probably an example of a decent product with a ridiculous name. Uh, they probably were, you know, still trying to get as much money out of people as possible. Was it as good as bovenine? <laughs> Nothing can ever be as good as bovenine. <laughs> yeah. Twice now. <laughs> I know your game. So nylon had a lot of advantages over boar bristle, including lower production cost, uh, and the manufacturer had the ability to shape the bristles and change the diameter of them for better performance. It also didn't rot and encourage bacterial growth as fast as boar bristles. <laughs> yeah. Gross, because the oh, boar bristles gross. wouldn't dry properly in between uses. Right. They were like too bunched together and they were good at holding in moisture. So gross. Apparently, according to something I read, this blew my mind. 
boar bristled toothbrushes still account for 10% of toothbrushes worldwide. Wow. Yeah. So I can see that in some places. That was 1937, 1938. Uh, the nylon bristles took over really fast here. Uh, again, probably mostly because they were very cheap to produce. So, World War II, soldiers were issued toothbrushes. They were held to a strict standard of hygiene, at least during training, probably not, you know, in the trenches. Uh, and when the war was over, they brought home the toothbrushes and the habit of cleaning their teeth with them. And toothbrushing just took off. Uh, it mm. became much more widespread and became sort of the habit that we know today where basically everybody brushes their teeth at least, you know, a couple times a week. <laughs> like, I, I knew that about toothbrushing, that it was really became a thing after World War II. But, like, that was most of our grandparents' age. Like, that's mm -hmm. kind of wild to me that it was that recent a thing that it became... Like, everybody did it rather than just, like, eh, my teeth feel kind of grungy, I'll rub them with my shirt or whatever. <laughs> and my grandparents, all four of them had false teeth, so correlation? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there are currently over 3,000 patents for toothbrushes, uh, and brushing your teeth twice a day along with flossing is, is regarded as the cornerstone of oral health. So Laura is going to regale us with the tale of nutrient fortification. Thanks, Ashlyn. So, of course, this is something that's near and dear to my nutritionist heart. So my mind immediately went there. But this is a big part of the public health nutrition initiatives. So I think I've talked about this before, but we didn't really know that things like vitamins existed until the early 1900s. So this is why the field of nutritional research is so evolving all the time. It's really young compared to a lot of other areas of study. So with the discovery of vitamins early in the 20th century, that allowed us to think a little bit more about what was actually in our food. Now, nutritional diseases or deficiencies have been known for millennia. We can look back in many different cultures and their historical texts, and they can describe different types of diseases that we now know are related to nutrition deficiencies. For example, one would be goiter, which is uh, the enlargement of the thyroid gland and the malfunction of the thyroid gland. Um, now we know that it is related to an iodine deficiency, so iodine is a mineral, um, that we need in very small amounts, but it's uh, key in making thyroid hormones. So people have been having goiters for, you know, as long as humans have been humans, but we just didn't know for a long time kind of what was the cause of that goiters. And there's a few other things like that. So for a long time in history, what we had is we had these diseases that would happen maybe if people weren't eating very well or if there was a famine or, or in certain populations, something like that. And we even had some treatments for these diseases, but we didn't know why it was happening. So for goiter, for example, there are uh, historical texts from China from at least 2,000 years ago describing how people who had goiters could take seaweed regularly and their goiter would clear up. So... They knew the disease, they knew a treatment, but we didn't know what was happening. 
with that there. Uh, similarly, we knew that cod liver oil could treat and most importantly prevent rickets, which is a vitamin D deficiency. Um, and what happens there is uh, with that vitamin D deficiency, it prevents growing bones from solidifying properly. So they become misshapen and they don't grow appropriately. So, so kids have deformities. And so we knew that by giving kids cod liver oil every day, which is incidentally high in vitamin D, we could cure it or prevent it even, but we just didn't know what was happening with that. So it was particularly for the vitamins part of it, it was as we started discovering these vitamins that we were able to start figuring out what it was about these cures that was fixing things. That's how the idea of really targeting the treatment with the specific chemical that was causing the deficiency came about there because before it was just foods and that. So as the field of research of nutrition developed, so did the idea of food fortification, nutrient fortification of foods, because we are now able to determine which nutrients were missing in someone's diet. So if we went to a population and they had a whole lot of goiter going on, we could now say, oh, they're missing iodine. So now what can we do? about that. We could do those kinds of things. And as that nutritional research, which is incidentally like biochemical research evolved, we were able to synthesize a bunch of vitamins as well, or we were able to prepare minerals in a way that we could in fact add them to foods. So we got the idea of fortifying food in the, or, or we started thinking that fortifying foods with these missing nutrients was a good idea and even possible in the early 20th century. Um, and the very first fortified food was actually iodized salt. So while it's not a food per se, it has been and continues to be a, a very essential ingredient to a lot of foods there. It's my favorite rock to eat. <laughs> exactly. And it's universal. Everybody uses it, right? So it, it spanned all sorts of cultures and cuisines. Everybody used and needed salt. So by iodizing the salt, you can get iodine to a lot of people. I enjoy a popcorn salt we have. We bought it and it, it's a commercial bottle and it says, this salt does not contain iodine, a necessary nutrient. And it's reminded me that yes, iodine is still added to salt. Yes, yeah, it's so normal now, at least here in Canada. So about 120 countries in the world require salt to be iodized, Canada being one of them. However, our closest neighbors who make interesting decisions sometimes, <laughs> um, they do not. So the U.S. does not require salt to be iodized. Though it was the first place to market iodized salt, um, they don't require it. But in a lot of places, even if it's not required, um, a lot of the salt is iodized anyway. There's a couple of exceptions. So sea salt doesn't need to be iodized and things that are not meant for table or cooking use, like pickling salt, don't need to be iodized are there other exceptions? Because like, so all of my fancy cookbooks tell you don't use iodized salt for like baking and cooking with. So I get like diamond crystal kosher salt or whatever. And it's not iodized, I don't think. But it's definitely yeah, made for cooking. It is. I don't know the rules around kosher with that. I, I really, I don't hmm. know. I know that there's like table salt, anything that's marketed as table salt should be iodized. Interesting. Because we do have kosher salt that is iodized, so I know that it can be and still be so kosher. It's it's tough because some kosher salt is meant for preparing foods, but not 
like the final additive. So it's meant for like brining something, but then you would also use a different salt at a different point or something like that, mm. maybe. I don't know. I don't know exactly. But yeah, it, table salt in Canada needs to be iodized. Uh-huh. And so we figured out in the late 1800s that it was iodine that was causing goiter. And we figured out, well, that's when we discovered iodine and and we put two and two together. Um, actually, the very first iodized food was um, an iodized alcoholic beverage that cured goiter. So... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we decided to add it to salt there. And while goiter is something that, I mean, I think we've all heard the term goiter. Most of us haven't met someone who has a goiter or, you know, most of us won't experience one of those ourselves. Partly My mom because had one. we have, oh yeah? Hmm. She had to get it yeah. removed. It, it can still happen, but it's far less common. So in the early 1900s, in the sort of Northeast uh, Great Lakes area, um, of the U.S., goiter percentage in children could be as high as 60% because oh. there's just no iodine in the soil. And also the the diet was really poor because these were a lot of really poor people and uh, the diet quality was really, really low. The food security was very, very low. So there was just no way for them to get the iodine. So goiter was, was a, a massive problem. And so with iodizing this the salt it it made a really big difference in in the number of cases of goiter for kids and it's estimated to have increased the IQ of children quite substantially I know we have problems with IQ but they could say like kids are performing better their brains work better (laughs) basically because they're getting this necessary nutrient anyway that's a bit of a side topic uh, from what I was saying but just goes to show that this is sort of how we started deciding what to fortify as well because we would discover all these new nutrients and we could have taken a path of oh we find something and we throw it in there but what was really happening is public health was saying this is a massive problem now we know what solves it so let's do that so iodine and salt was the first thing in 1924 and then uh, vitamin d being added to milk followed shortly thereafter in 1933 because rickets was a very big problem particularly among the poor city dwellers And then uh, in the 1940s, that's when we saw the invention of enriched wheat flour. So that's when some of the B vitamins like thiamine and niacin and riboflavin were added into the flour as well as iron. And that's a key one as well, especially for kids because iron is so important in development. Iron helps us play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Initially, the goal of food fortification was to resolve this deficiency, to prevent these deficiency diseases there. And as I mentioned, this was at a time where the industrial world is in full swing, more and more urbanization, poor diet quality as well, like poor availability. And lots of people just, they're moving from rural areas where they might've farmed or might've been in contact with more of these nutrients, even if it was subsistence farming. And now they're in cities where they really can't afford much, right? They're, they're on very, very limited diets. We also at this time see the invention of more and more processed foods and the food transport system and, and things like that. And while that on the whole provided us a lot of really great things, At the beginning, we didn't realize that by processing these foods or transporting them long distances or holding them for long times and that that their nutrient quality was going down so much. So while the calories might have been there, the the nutrients were were really low. 
And so people were still getting these deficiency diseases, even if they weren't quote unquote starving. So the goal of nutrient fortification was to resolve this deficiency. It was also to equalize the playing field a little bit because they saw that it's the the kids especially seeing kids develop these diseases that was really hard for a lot of people and they they wanted to stop that and they wanted to make sure that the the poorest most disadvantaged people had access to adequate nutrients there so they were really trying to think like what is the easiest vehicle to get them these things we weren't really at a point of supplementation so supplementation is when you synthesize particularly a vitamin or, or you uh, formulate a mineral and you, you make it into a capsule or a, a, an elixir or something like that and you take that separately so it's not part of a food. Um, so we weren't really in that stage and also that's really hard to access. I mean this is a time too where there's no health care, there's so little money to go around so nobody's going to use that, right? Whereas if you just put something in food, nobody has to change their behavior, especially as a lot of people recognized at the time, many people didn't have a choice on their behaviors, right? They ate whatever they could. So now they don't, they can keep doing exactly what they were doing, but they're getting more out of it. That was the idea. Now, over time, as we learned more about nutrients, and then as the Second World War finished and uh, we moved into that uh, 1950s sort of heyday era, the uh, priority started to shift a little bit from just resolving deficiency or preventing deficiency to actually improving health. So this is when we start to see nutrient fortification become more of a selling feature, right? So people don't want to be like just getting enough to prevent rickets. They want to be Superman, right? So (laughs) if a little bit is good, more is better, right? And we're still living in that age right now. Vector cereal. (laughs) It's um, Stuff's like chewing rocks. For the record. Yeah. So so that's kind of where we are now. So if you ever wondered why it's such a selling feature, it really is because some of these things became mandated. For example, the, the enrichment of wheat flour became standard in Canada and the U.S. Um, same thing with vitamin D added to milk, dairy milk. It needs to be fortified. And of course, the iodized salt that we talked about. Um, but then some companies would go above and beyond. So they would just start adding other things in or larger amounts or, or whatever it was to, to be a selling point, to be like, this is the healthiest food, right? And uh, you'll grow bigger and stronger and smarter and all those those types of things. So we've had a bit of a shift in the nutrient fortification there. One of the things that's really interesting is that while nutrient fortification in general is seen as a good thing, it's still a bit controversial here. And it's not controversial in the way, so I started this off wanting to talk about fluoride. (laughs) And I'm like, I could talk about fluoride this whole time and another podcast. And I really wanted to talk about vitamins and minerals too. But I think we all know those claims against fluoridated water and how it's going to give you XYZ condition, it's controlling your mind, blah, blah, blah. That's become really controversial in that poppy kind of way. Well, and you've done a segment about fluoride before, I think. I never remember any segment I've ever done. <laughs> Maybe we talked about it in passing yeah. or something like that. I don't think I've done a whole thing. The, uh, the Calgary drinking water, we talked about that. Oh, I think we were talking about how people were worried about it. So they took the fluoride out and then dental caries went way up. So it's like, no, obviously this is making a difference. So there is a bit of a challenge with that. And there's, there are a bit of controversies, but it's more so about how much 
nutrients should be added to food and also which foods. Because we're at a point where diets are a lot more varied. Populations are a little bit more varied. And even within countries in that, you have to look at the cultural practices and the foods that are being eaten and who is eating those foods as well. So one of the examples that I'm really familiar with is folic acid supplementation, which since I believe 1998 has been mandatory for flour, but also things that are made with flour. So like white pasta would have folic acid added Mm. to it and that kind of thing too. Folic acid was added to food because typically Canadians had low levels of folic acid and because it was highly connected to neural tube defects. So the thought was we give people more folic acid and we'll have fewer neural tube defects. And we did see that. However, we also see that some people now have sky high levels of folic acid because they eat so many of these foods. Another example is when iron was first started to be added to white flour. The goal there was to make sure that children and uh, women had enough iron in their diet because these were the the groups that are much more likely to be deficient. And they did to some extent, more the children more so than the women, but men started to have sky high levels because they were eating so much white flour all the time. So, so there is some question about it. As far as I could tell, the, the question of whether to fortify or not is a little bit less important than how much and where to do it. That's still an ongoing challenge. And again, as our populations shift and our needs shift, that's something to keep in mind. Um, interesting fact, in, I think it's Guatemala, but it could be a different South American country I or Central American country. Sugar is actually fortified with uh, vitamins and minerals. Interesting. Yeah. So usually they try to add it to a sort of wholesome food stuff, like a food stuff that is uh, highly nutrient dense and that people eat a lot. Mm-hmm. But in that case, sugar was reaching a lot of people. So it's hard. You know, it, it doesn't seem like the best thing to fortify because here if we if we see like I don't know Pepsi now has vitamin B12 and iron in it we'd be like what (laughs) what now well energy drinks have tons of B vitamins they do but that's just bullshit so (laughs) I want to be in the room when they make this decisions about what foods to fortify it sounds like an amazing conversation to listen to you want to be in the room where it happens I was trying really hard not to say that, Jim. <laughs> you too need to stop being so in sync. <laughs> Would the lucky iron fish kind of fall under nutrient supplementation, Laura? No. Well, no. Su- supplementation, yes. Fortification, not really. Fortification refers to a population like level thing. Putting it in food? putting it in food before the consumer ever touches it. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the difference too. So the lucky iron fish, so if anybody's not familiar, basically it's an iron fish that you uh, boil in a pot of water and it releases some iron into the water. And then you use that iron rich water for your cooking and, and drinking and all sorts of things like that. And it can be a substantial source of iron for a lot of people. It's you can also really... just like leave it in the pot and make curries and other and like soups and stuff with it. And yeah, those. yeah, yeah. You can do that. I don't want to like clean it or deal with like it burning to the bottom <laughs> or anything like that. I actually really want one, but I haven't figured out how I'm going to use it yet. So I haven't, I haven't done it. I um, would be really, um, I would want to use it as a mordant for dyeing cloth because uh, <laughs> iron is a very good mordant. Yes, but you could also get iron from it. 
<laughs> for so your diet. It's interesting, like in our family, because I actually saw a Facebook ad recently to buy one. It was like twenty five mm-hmm. bucks or something, and then they would donate some to uh, to other countries. Uh, and apparently, it lasts for like five years until the smile mm-hmm. fades. Was the Aww. was the guy's line, which I thought was adorable. But yeah. we couldn't use it in our house because while Lauren and I could probably use more iron, Dave has too much iron because he has yeah. hemochromatosis. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Dave has hemochromatosis, which... so we probably shouldn't be giving him more iron. But I think it's a cool idea. <laughs> This is non-heme iron, so it's much less well absorbed. So you're at a lower risk oh, for that. But you, yeah, you might think about using like the high iron water for certain things that you two are more likely to have, and then regular water or like not that pot for something that Dave's more likely to have. Nothing is safe from Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Nutrient fortification has been beneficial. We have seen important effects, like I mentioned about the iodized salt. Goiter incidence has dropped significantly in a lot of in populations. Um, rickets is not gone, but like the the addition of vitamin D has helped again significantly. A lot of these things have helped a lot, and I can't remember all the numbers off the top of my head, but it's very significant decreases with these things. So we definitely see that it is a helpful thing. What makes it a little less controversial too is that one always frame it with kids and people have a hard time being mean or a harder time being mean and denying it to other people. And two, these aren't like weird chemicals or something like that. These are things that are in foods. They just got lost or people don't have access to those nutrients there. So that helps with that. But it's been a real a real public health boon. And um, we see all sorts of programs happening. Every country is a little bit different, as I mentioned, based on what their population needs. And even some countries within the country, they have different types of fortification. So some countries will fortify a bunch of different staple foods for all their cultural groups, but at low levels so that people are likely to get everything they need if they mix their diet. Whereas here we tend to fortify just a few foods. And so if you don't eat those foods, you're kind of SOL. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's been a real public health boon. And uh, it's something that we have to continue to refine as we learn more about what we need and and so on and so forth cool i still find my brain doing the like i can't get the terms right fortification versus supplementation but that's fine you don't need to (laughs) Mm. um yeah i do if i want to sound like i know what i'm talking about after you just told me (laughs) (laughs) The, the way I think of it is uh, fortify, you're taking something that's already built and you're making it stronger. <laughs> so you're taking the food and you're like adding to it. Whereas supplementation is like you're bringing something else in. Yeah. Know. Yeah. No, that's a really good way of thinking about it. So the lucky iron fish would be fortifying your own food. Yeah. Self-fortification. Ooh. It's not a fortification program. Because you had to do it as the consumer. Yeah. I would say it's still a public health initiative, though, because it's something that has been, like, widely advertised, promoted to yeah. various people, well, it, especially where that's, it, there's a lot of anemia. Yeah. Today is that's the first where it was day developed I'm hearing about for. it. <laughs> really? Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. talked about this before. No. Not with me. Oh. I've never heard oh, of it. It's the coolest thing. I love it. No, they're awesome. And they were specifically developed for, some, for people in those developing nations where iron deficiency is such a problem. Mm-hmm. 
And then they started marketing it to us rich Westerners. <laughs> to help offset the cost of the program. Yeah. But I, I guess the one thing I want to point out, too, is just because, you know, the four of us, we live here in Canada. We all have access to the food that we want, um, nutritious foods, those types of things. But nutrient deficiencies still happen here. And mm-hmm. it's much less on the radar for people because we just don't think about it. It's not there anymore. And because we know that foods are fortified, we assume that everybody's getting things. But again, things aren't always fortified to what we actually need. So like we all know that vitamin D is added to milk. You would have to drink like six to eight cups of milk a day as an adult to get all of your vitamin D needs from milk alone. Like it's, it's a milk. lot. Like most, and, and we know that milk consumption is going down, especially as you become an adult, milk consumption goes down. So that vitamin D is still a problem here in Canada. But yeah, nutrient fortification is cool. So as always, uh, we like to end these episodes uh, by talking about things that we are enjoying because there are still good things in life despite the everything that's going on (laughs) right now. So what have you been enjoying, everyone? Well, I'm enjoying Animal Crossing. (laughs) (laughs) And also this particular week, and this is, you know, it's going to keep the show from being evergreen, but... uh, Oh no, we've only mentioned COVID like Well Don't worry, that'll be evergreen forever. (laughs) I mean to the specific week. Because of the COVID crisis, the Leeds Medieval Conference uh, has gone entirely online this year, and they opened it up as free to everyone to attend. So, I mean, oh, cool. so a lot of the um, the talks I wanted to attend are at like three in the morning because it's still held on mm-hmm. Greenwich Mean Time. And they, <laughs> but I uh, I've been get, I've made it to a couple of sessions now, and it's really interesting, and it's nice to connect with people in a um, scholarly way when I am not a scholar. I have really been enjoying the summery weather here. I, uh, again, keeping it from being evergreen, but we are having a lot of hot weather, like a lot of places, but I am very much a fan of our extremes here, how our winter is very cold and our summer should be very hot. And I always feel a little bit cheated if we don't get a nice hot summer. You're (laughs) the prick who likes it. (laughs) I don't like, it's not like I want it to be 40 degrees and humid every day or anything, but I appreciate that it feels like summer. (laughs) (laughs) It's 30 degrees with a humidity, with a humidex such that it feels like 40. There you go. So that's just a very... A very temporal kind of thing. So that's lovely. I like that. And I don't know, I've been kind of liking my work a little bit lately, which is weird. (laughs) (laughs) But I've I've been liking a few things and uh, been doing a lot of thinking and connecting with some colleagues and and like that. And uh, I'm not really full of specifics. I think there's just a few things that I'm enjoying. Well, that's nice. That's lovely. How about you, Ashlyn? I'm really enjoying summer also. I like warmth, but I also like being able to come in into the air conditioning. And I feel very privileged to have air conditioning and the ability to go outside and lie in my little uh, hammock retreat that I have made for myself with 
Uh, it's like under a tree and it has a, a beautiful canvas tarp over it so that it doesn't even get rained on if it's raining. It's wonderful. It's the best thing. Uh, <laughs> and I'm also really excited to go to a cabin that my parents have rented for a few days and just be away from home because we all of our other plans, of course, have been canceled and we should be just coming home from Gala Festival, which was canceled and moved to next mm. year. And so... I uh, didn't get to do any of my shows in June and won't be going camping in August. So just getting out to the cabin for a few days sounds super nice. And it's good to just have like something to look forward to. It's yeah. not yeah. exactly the same as every other day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That makes a difference. Uh, and a book that I have talked about on the show before, the the City of Brass, the Devabad trilogy, uh, the third book came out and I just found out that it came out today so I am excited about that oh cool <laughs> I bought I bought the city of brass a while ago and I still have not read it <laughs> do it <laughs> all right you're up Jim so the thing that I am enjoying most lately is telling my work that I'm not going to be a software developer anymore because <laughs> <laughs> I did that yesterday um, and everybody was uh, completely lovely, very supportive. I am very lucky for the last uh, two years, you know, despite still being in tech and still having that kind of culture. The the specific company that I work for, Permission Click, is good. You know, we do good work, and I I'm proud of the the things that we do, and the the team is great. And yeah, I'm gonna miss everyone, but I'm excited about what comes next which is lots of school and <laughs> lots less money. <laughs> In terms of uh, books that I've been enjoying lately, I have been, well, I mean, the titles of the books are different, but really the themes are uh, going to be pretty similar. Uh, I have been reading Elizabeth Sandifer's Neo Reaction, A Basilisk, uh, which is a series of essays about the alt-right and neo-reactionary movement. And that's really good. Uh, her writing style is incredible, um, just very sort of wry and enjoyable. Um, the book gets a little heady and philosophical at times, but that's not, it's different from what I often read, but good. It keeps you awake at night for different reasons. <laughs> Uh, lots of Nazis in there um, mixed in <laughs> with uh, discussions of Rocco's Basilisk, uh, as we talked about way back on episode like 87 or something, the dawn of the modern era of L-U-E-E. Mm -hmm. Back when we got together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's when we started doing it in person again. And I've also been uh, reading Alex S. Vitale's uh, The End of Policing from Verso Books. Uh, which is uh, sort of the the kind of is probably the most cited text in the um, defund the police police abolition movement these days, and it's worth reading. It goes into a history of policing uh, in North America and around the world, and also you know talks about a lot of these systemic problems and solutions to them. So that's uh, a uh, big thumbs up for me. Uh, it's currently on sale. Like the ebook is on sale for like I think four fifty or something. Uh, nice on the Verso Books website. So yeah, give that a read. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, everybody. 
our new snappy system means that we have only I've only have an hour and a half of recording, but I think like twenty five minutes of that was screwing around in the beginning, so not too bad. Not too shabby. <laughs> I think we did well. Yeah. All right. Well, have a great evening, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night, folks. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. bristled toothbrushes still account for 10% of toothbrushes worldwide. Wow. Yeah. So I can see that in some places. That would be about 30 to 50 wild boars, eh? <laughs> I'm <Lauren>. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm editing that out. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we can't insert a drop of a picture of a tweet, Lauren. <laughs> Watch okay, me. it's time to go to video podcasting <laughs> just for this one joke. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, you're you're not on Twitter. I know. I'm happier thing. that way. There was a there was a guy on Twitter like a year ago or something who was like, "What am I gonna do? You know, if if the if they take away my guns, what am I gonna do when my young children are menaced by the thirty to fifty boars that rampage across my property?" <laughs> and everyone was like, "What? It was yeah. only six how is that go, Jim? No way." Let me look. Let me look back into my tweets. Time is not moving that slowly. That's wild. Wild boars. Ah. Uh-huh.